Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Democracy Sausage. Um, my name is Dr. Andrew Hughes. I'm filling in again for uh, the um, very esteemed Mark Kenny, who's currently away on holidays somewhere interesting, probably, or maybe he's living in the Twitterverse, wherever that happens to be. That's that's cyberspace. If you live in cyberspace, like Wreck-It Ralph, then um, life's pretty good. Um, so you can follow what we talk about today and engage with us, and please do. We're always interested to hear your opinions, comments, and any questions you may have via our Twitter, Facebook, and of course email. Twitter, we're found at APPS Policy Forum, all one word. Look for us. I'm sure you'll find it, um, us pretty easily. Uh, Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and email is podcast at policyforum.net. So my name's Andrew Hughes. I'll take you through all of today. Um, and let's start off with my guests. Let's introduce them. I like to do this in their own words because I always find it's a more powerful thing to hear people talk about themselves in their own way and their own context. So my first guest, Maria. Oh, hi, everyone. Well, I'm I'm happy to be back after my, my two-week sojourn uh, away from your earphones. Um, I think you all know who I am. I'm, I'm Maria from the School of Politics. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, John Hewson? Yes. Hi. I, I'm um, chair of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute in the Crawford School at ANU and have had various careers in the past. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, John. Um, and just to clarify something. Now, this is me being perhaps a bit of a fanboy of yours from a long time ago. I remember reading an interview where you once said when you worked, I think it was at Macquarie as a professor there, that you'd start your job in the morning and then do another job in the afternoon in the city. Is that correct? Uh, when I worked uh, as a professor at the University of New South Wales, I had a joint appointment with the Fraser government. So I was an economic advisor or chief of staff to either the treasurer uh, and working with Fraser's office. So I would teach in the morning on Mondays, put all my teaching on Monday mornings and spend the rest of the week travelling with the ministers. Now, the reason I remember that is I was at high school and I read that article about you. There you go. <laughs> so that's showing my age here. But, um, but I remember reading that and um, I remember seeing you the picture on a Ferrari too. So I forget what that was for. It was some like weekend publication. I'm but. pretty sure he just owned, you just owned a Ferrari, right? Yeah. I don't have the Ferrari anymore. No. <laughs> that, that's probably a good decision. There's better cars <laughs> around by far. Um, all right. So let's kick it off anyway, away from, um, back onto the track, you might say, away from the personal stuff for now. I'll come back with my surprise question at the end. Okay. So. Sounds we, ominous. It, it, well, last week's surprise question was name your famous, uh, your favorite album to chill out to. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, yeah. Or, or to get angry to. One, one of the two. Go, go either way. I mean, nowadays it's whatever works for you, right? Yeah. So there you go. There, yeah, it's thinking, thinking time. Okay. Um, yeah, at, at a left field. So 
We have seen a lot of announcements made by the Prime Minister in the last few weeks, particularly since the election, on changes to the Australian Public Service, the APS. Now, of course, led by um, changes to names, which is, to me, just a branding exercise, speaking as a marketing person in the room, um, <laughs> but not really a change in direction, you might say. So, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just looking at too much of a marketing person. Um, of course, Services Australia is a new ministry now um, head, headed by Stuart Robert from the Gold Coast um, and Scott Morrison's ex-flatmate here in Canberra. And it shows a lot of faith in um, Stuart Robert, of course, because he went from being outside the cabinet. Now he's inside the cabinet and one of Scott Morrison's right-hand people. So are we looking at a wholesale redundancy privatisation or continued pork barrelling of the APS? What do you think? What's the direction we're heading in? Maria? All right. So this is this is a question from, from James Rumble. So thank you for your question, James. Um, look, so there's been a couple of other changes to the APS um, most recently, the the appointment of um, Phil Gachins to be uh, head of the uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet, replacing uh, Martin Parkinson, who is retiring. Uh, so there has been some concern raised about this appointment, primarily because uh, Phil Gachins used to be Chief of Staff to Scott Morrison. And I guess um, there is, I guess for those who don't like this appointment, uh, what people are I guess complaining about is I guess the growing politicization of uh, the public service where prime ministers are increasingly appointing senior public servants who I guess are a better political fit uh, and I guess one of the things we might want to consider with this is how well does it fit into a, like a Westminster style of public uh, service executive relationships as opposed to other systems namely the US where these kinds of political appointments are are par for the course. Now, I know not everyone agrees with me about um, about Phil Gachins. Um, what do you think, John? Well, Phil's had jobs in and out of politics. I mean, he's worked for ministers and he's worked uh, as uh, Secretary of the New South Wales Treasury and uh, re most recently the Federal Treasury. Uh, you could say he got those jobs too because of his political connections, but I think he's been a pretty objective sort of performer, pretty much like Parkinson was, who'd mm. had a period in Treasury and in a period in climate change and ended up Prime Minister. Um, I think the politicisation of the public service is a big issue. It's been happening for some decades. When I first got involved in politics in the 70s, I mean, it was the final days of what we used to call the seven dwarfs, seven short men who controlled the government. They were permanent secretaries appointed basically for their working life. I used to meet on the Commonwealth Club on a regular basis over, an, over a scotch or a, <laughs> uh, whatever. And as prime ministers came, they used to say, well, look, you're here. You're probably here for a short time, but we're here for a long time. <laughs> and so collectively, they had a big influence. They gave pretty much frank and fearless advice in those days. They were Now, that world is different. I mean, I noticed when Morrison recently briefed the public service, uh, he said that he wanted them to focus on service delivery, which is the point that you just just made. But he didn't say anything much about wanting any f fearless and frank and free advice, <laughs> which is basically what they need because uh, you know, politics has just become so short-term and opportunistic that if your main sources of advice are politicised and they only tell you what they think you want to hear mm. or that they think you can get up, uh, it 
demeans the significance of the public service. So we need to move a bit back to a less politicised public service. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, there are a couple of other issues um, in relation to this. My favourite of the Seven Dwarves story is there was a book produced only a few years ago about the Seven Dwarves, but it actually has 12 people on the cover <laughs> because they cannot decide exactly which ones were the Seven Dwarves. I think the Seven um, would have been able to tell you. <laughs> I'm sure they would have, but I, yes. But anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of uh, issues around this. So, for example, um, Scott Morrison has said that he wants the public service to focus on uh, delivery and implementation and he sort of also kind of said that he doesn't want the public service to be developing policy ideas because you know he thinks this is a role for um, political parties alone and I guess for for me I think this is a, an interesting thing to sort of say given that the public service has traditionally been a repository of um, advice giving and and to a large degree uh, policy expertise uh, uh, even in the area of um, policy development which is sort of, I guess, supposed to traditionally have gone hand in hand with uh, parties' own policy making processes, which, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, John, you might also have a view on this, may, may have uh, retarded over time in recent decades within the parties. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, when I first got involved, I, I, met, I really focused on the fact that I believe that good evidence-based public policy would be pretty good government and good politics with a relatively short lag. Mm. And today it's short-term politics. It's stopping the development of good evidence-based policy. And to discourage the public service from doing what they're particularly good at, which is evidence-based policy, or indeed if the party's got an idea in a policy area, most of them are not very well developed, they should give them to the public service and give us the range of options here, give us the assessment of the pluses and minuses sort of thing so we can make an informed decision. And unfortunately, you see a lot of this sort of shooting from the hip uh, in, in politics today where, you know, a decision is announced and then nobody thinks about it. I mean, Morrison in the Wentworth by-election, for example, wanting to sort of what he believed would do would secure the Jewish vote, uh, going along to a board of Jewish Board of Deputies uh, meeting, he's sending Sharma along, why don't we announce that we'll move the embassy <laughs> from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Now, the consequences of that sort of decision after decades of bipartisan position against it um, really just show how a little bit of evidence-based thinking might have made a big difference to that sort of announcement. It was totally counterproductive. And you know, Morrison, unfortunately, is a, a marketing guy. You know, He's got a pocket full of slogans. You ask him a question, he'll give you a slogan. Don't ask him a second question because he hasn't got any detail to back it up and he's not that interested in it. He has no personal policy agenda. I mean, it shows now he's got elected. He had elected on basically on a tax package, which has gone through. The legislative agenda looking forward is pretty thin because there isn't anything on the agenda. And so he's a reactive sort of politician. He reacts to circumstances and events and people as they unfold, which is not necessarily the way the country should be run. Yeah, exactly. And do you think that, that perhaps that policy, um, that lack of detail and depth on it, <coughs> is partly caused by the parties wanting to win at all costs, but also partly because the parties themselves really don't undertake a lot of research in their respective areas before they go off and talk about a policy, perhaps a la Labor 2019 federal election. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure, I guess, and, you know, in a social media world and so on where people sort of believe in instantaneous solutions. Mm. But you take a big issue like housing affordability, it's taken us a couple of decades as a country to make a mess of that. And you're not going to turn it around with an instantaneous solution. And it's going to be a multifaceted solution on both the supply side and the demand side to 
to, uh, over many years probably to actually turn those circumstances around so that housing does become affordable or, the, you know, and uh, in those circumstances, you know, you get this very superficial response. And I guess both sides in the last election didn't try to solve any of the problems like housing affordability or or electricity and gas prices and other, other elements of the cost of living. They just decided to offer you a bit of a tax cut, make you feel mm-hmm. better about it. But don't help you. Actually, you know, we're going to face more increases in power costs. We're going to face more increases in in housing costs uh, as a community. And um, I think the electorate's looking for them to actually start to solve some of those problems rather than just dress them up a little bit or try and ease the pain a little bit because uh, it, it doesn't – I, mean, I saw a survey the other day by finder.com where nearly 6 million Australians are living from payday to payday. You know, that's a yeah. lot. That's a big number of people who are really struggling with the cost of living. And okay, if you give them a tax cut, sure, you know, thanks very much. You know, they may not spend it. They may have to pay down their mortgage, or may have to pay off their bank card, or they may, you know, feel that they should put a bit away because their jobs are not secure. Uh, so there's a there's this disconnect between the sort of language you have from the government about how strong the economy is and how well we're all doing. And what a very significant increasing majority probably of people are struggling to meet the cost of living day in, day out. Yeah, you're right. And and that touches on another question we had off the Facebook page, and that's from James Froston, who says, despite, despite growing consensus on its economic benefits, the government is refusing to consider raising New Start. What do you think are the real reasons for this? And and we saw that play out a lot in the last couple of weeks, this argument and discussion about raising New Start, including this morning. Um, only on Monday, I should say, on from Barnaby Joyce, where he discussed suddenly he going through a divorce has made him understand um, that people struggle and um, that um, that raising new start is not such a bad idea after all. Um, even though a week ago he said, of course, the complete opposite. It, it, it's funny. Well, how, look, the position on unemployment benefits, new start, and the government has always been based on prejudice. Yeah, and it's always been based <clears throat> on on um, you know a view. That uh, the people who are unemployed are dull bludgers, and the best thing they can do is get a job. Yeah, and of course they all want to get a job. And, you know, in most yeah. cases they want to get a job. It's just that there aren't enough jobs to go around, given the number of people who are under, un, unemployed or underemployed. And um, you know, so it has never had a serious consideration. And of course, the nature of those on New Start has changed a lot. Used to be mostly younger people. Now there's a very significant percentage of people on that benefit are aged over 50. Yeah, about 170,000. You know, so it's a big number. And uh, so that their old prejudice is misplaced as well. So in those circumstances, look, if you really do want to stimulate consumer spending, you give the money to those who are definitely going to have to spend it. Yeah. And uh, in those terms, I think from the point of view of their economic strategy, that's, that's an important element. I was fascinated Barnaby Joyce saying his backbencher salary is only two hundred grand, and his tragedy is he's got to support two families. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of choice in all that. Yeah. I think he made all those choices are you, himself. Are you and, sure? uh, but it, and how you translate <laughs> from that to you know somebody who's, who's got perhaps no family struggling on new start. Uh, but uh, anyway, the point is, yeah, there are cost of living pressures which uh, a lot of people in politics, I suppose, are above. You know, they've got larger salaries and three times the average wage or something like that. Precisely. Is the base, is the base salary. Um, you know, then they've got a whole lot of other benefits and support that uh, that other people don't have. 
it is as it is to use Morrison's expression, a bubble in Canberra, <laughs> and yeah. they are isolated from the hard cost. I mean, that Finder.com survey of nearly six million Australians. The other one that struck me was ASIC came out with a statement that there are one point nine million older Australians who are struggling with credit card debt. Yeah. You know, they're, they're and, and some cards. housing debt still, yeah. they still don't own their own home. So, you know, these are big numbers and they tell you that the base level of the community, upwards well over probably a 50%, are struggling mm. week in, week out. And, uh, you know, in a world of flat wages and record debt and house prices falling and, you know, there's not too much to be confident and job insecurity rising. There's not too much to be confident about. Yeah. Maria? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I guess what's kind of interesting about the – Shifts within the nationals um, on this is that for um, you know for a party that has traditionally always represented some of the poorest electorates in the country, it's it's um, it's finally nice to sort of all refreshing to see them sort of take this issue um, up because you know we should recall that New Start hasn't actually changed uh, in real terms since I think ninety four now nineteen ninety four ninety four yeah. yeah yeah so 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 the you know the value of this um, benefit um, hasn't kept in line with um, actual wages, which means its spending power has decreased um, over time. But to answer the question that, that was asked, what do you think the real reason for this is? Well, I think it's that the the government, uh, the other thing the government promised at the election, apart from tax cuts, was a surplus. I mean, if you recall that interview with Scott Morrison and Lee Sales, where it was very strange, where they went backwards and forwards over um, the fact that Scott Morrison had announced a surplus in the election for next year, for the for the preceding year, for the coming year, sorry, um, and um, and this sort of awkward exchange between the two of them, where he finally conceded that the the budget wasn't in surplus now, that it was in surplus for the year following, and so even though increasing um, new start, new start is, I think, about it's supposed to cost about three billion dollars, which I think someone described as a rounding error in the budget. Um, no one, no one, there's no appetite within the government to do this because of the surplus and their promise on the surplus. But that's really changing. I mean, we're, we're probably seen internal politics within the coalition here too, mainly the Liberal Party, where people like Dean Smith um, and others within the moderates are coming out and saying, no, we've got to increase it. We can't keep on being like this because you know, it's really affecting people's quality of lives. And as John said before, the prejudice in people's minds about um, the typical doll bludger being someone at Byron Bay who surfs every um, morning and afternoon and night probably, um, is going. It's been destroyed by the fact that we're now seeing people age in their 40s and 50s who are, um, you know, accessing Newstart for a long period of time because of ageism in the workforce, because of other factors, marriage breakdowns, things like that. Um, that report out from ACOS, I think that was also last week where it highlighted that people on Newstart, around 40% of them, if not a little bit higher, don't put the heater on in winter because they can't afford it. That's shocking figures. I mean, it is, just, yeah. As a nation, you, you know, I think this is now, I think the trick here though, and maybe John as the economist w- would say more about this, but the, the, I think the trick is now for the government is how do they be, pretend to be um, seen as being you know strong on the economy, so to speak, but also have that human touch, um, which Scott Morrison's so keen now to put across. He's using, for example, his faith a lot more publicly than any other prime minister I can remember to say, hey, look at me. I've got a soft touch. I'm a Christian. I'm a nice guy. I'm out there. You know, I'm, I care about people. Um, you know, Jesus loved everyone, and, and I do too. And um, if that's going to be reflected in your policy development, surely this is where it starts. 
Yeah, well, he's going to run aground on that, isn't he? Because, I mean, a Pentecostal Christian wouldn't want to reverse the Medivac legislation, for example. <laughs> uh, but, I can't see that, that uh, as adding good. up. Um, it's a balancing and, act, and, isn't it, And um, you're, you're right. I mean, if you were genuinely concerned about the welfare of individuals, you'd start with Newstart. There are a lot of other, you know, inadequacies and anomalies in the welfare system. Yeah. But um, – Overall, it's probably a fairly effective system. It's relatively well targeted by, OE, targeted by OECD standards and so on. But um, you know, if you really want to portray the view that you have a – there's a human side to your, your, your attitude to politics, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And uh, New Start's obviously one of them. I would have thought the Medivac legislation, which was based just on medical evidence – you know, and um, spend $180 million opening and then closing Christmas Island <laughs> for a very expensive press conference, you know, you're, you're not sending the right messages to people. You know, I think you'll be held to account if that's your view. If you want to take a, a view that I'm Christian and I really care about these things, well, you're a long way to go to translate that into effective policy. And I'm, I don't disagree with that. I think we've lost a lot of that. Yeah. I think government's lost a lot of moral compass on a lot of these issues. And uh, in those It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Circumstances, it's a, it's a real challenge for Morrison to, you know, you can't just wrap yourself in, the, in, a, in religion on one hand and not deliver against that on the other. And uh, I do think in the last election, some of those seats, the swings within seats, did turn on religious issues and ethnic issues and that sort of thing, which which didn't get a lot of publicity. Yeah. But there are very strong moods out there. And, I mean, if you want to try and, as a politician, tap into some of that, you better be prepared to deliver against it because otherwise you'll be surprised as to how you know, strong the adverse reaction might be. And, uh, and talking of adverse reactions, um, we'll get to our next topic on foreign fighters and um, what John just, just uh, touched on before. We're going to have a quick break. Um, go off, make yourself a cuppa slash sausage. Um, Definitely a sausage. Sausage. Oh, so, so now you've got me. Maybe we'll do a quick before the break question. How do you like your sausage, like democracy sausage? Onions, sauce. Oh, definitely onions. Are we talking vegan sausage? No, no, no. I'm, I'm sadly, I am a meat eater. Yeah, so you know, so so maybe like yeah. a nice beef sausage with onions. There we go. Beef. Yeah, no, nothing, yeah. nothing sauce. spicy or interesting like no. some butchers sell nowadays. No, interesting no, sausages. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the standard democracy sausage. Uh, it depends what's available. Yeah, I'm, white bread. <laughs> <laughs> See. It's 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 always a surprise Actually, question, which I I, I I my food tastes are broader than this, but but you know what? Why go why go against a classic? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. what I say too, yeah. John. Oh, I guess the bunning sausage. Oh, can't go past it. <laughs> sausage sizzles at the Onions morning. first, yeah. You can't get in and out of Bunnings with the smells. You've got to go and have one. Oh, that's, that's and that has onions and sauce. And oh, stop tradi- it! Man, very traditional. All right, on that note, break time. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, so welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed that quick break. And um, if you didn't have one, well, we're still here. So let's touch on the issue um, and talk about this um, bigger issue, I suppose, which came up during the week on Foreign Fighters Bill. And this is a question from the Facebook page. Thanks, Liam Hughes. Uh, regarding both the Foreign Fighters Bill and our love of deporting New Zealanders with significant ties to Australia, do we have a responsibility to rehabilitate people radicalised in Australia, especially those who have spent the majority of their lives here? So, John, over to you first. Well, not necessarily a responsibility, but it's obviously a pressing issue. And uh, where a lot of the men who who led their families offshore have been killed and the wives and children are left I mean, it's a fairly serious challenge in in terms of humanity as to what you do about that. I mean, what I didn't like about this legislation was that the ultimate decision goes to the minister, mm. where it should be a matter for the court, in my view, and this minister in particular, I wouldn't let him decide anything, not even choosing a sausage. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'll be very careful that, uh, you know, it's cementing his position, increasingly cementing his position in a range of legislation. Uh, where he's shown uh, some pretty terrible judgments in the past as to, you know, who can and can't come to this country. <laughs> yeah. um, I see that uh, if you're an au pair or if you're a Chinese whole roller gambler, you can get in yep. relatively easily. But uh, there are a lot of people that just really who are very desperate circumstances uh, seeking asylum who get treated pretty badly and have been treated very badly because – the asylum seeker policies have been incomplete as well. I mean, we've always uh, moved to offshore processing. You seem to have bipartisan support for that. But the other shoe is, you know, a resettlement strategy. And we've never really had one and we've never led the regional response to that. And uh, so we've relied a bit on the Obama deal uh, in terms of resettlement to some extent. Yet we knock back the New Zealand offer. I mean, these are important inconsistencies. We don't have an overarching policy in relation to either the the return of those who you know, have been sort of uh, foreign fighters uh, right through to you know the asylum seeker policies. There's a lot of inconsistencies in that and it's been very opportunistic for the government uh, in particular to score or try to score political points on that. Well, I think most people are standing back saying, look, there's a big issue here. There's a lot of humanity mm-hmm. dimensions to this. Um, we'd expect a bit more from government. Could you see a scenario where perhaps Christmas Island, which we talked about just before the break, um, is dragged out of mothballs and these people are put there? Do you think this government No, look, I, like that? I think they need to make some judgments. I mean, again, it, obviously there are processes to judge these things and to to judge whether the uh, the extent to which the family was radicalised mm. or they were just taken by the father in particular, uh, you know, to those war zones and uh, they've had to cope as best they can. I mean, they're judgments that have to be made um, but um, and there are processes for that. But I just think sticking them offshore again and I think it wasn't true that Howard excised Christmas Island from yeah, Australia in legal terms. Right. Yeah, yeah, you can't you know, migrate like, there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's not what well, we should do. Well, you can't migrate about. to the mainland now either. 
That's yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah, they change yeah. a lot of the laws. Even though the the largest people overstay visas uh, are people who arrive on plane. And oh, uh, yes, it's like ten to one or something. Yeah, and it's ridiculous and, that yeah. that's always been. We've got this focus on boat people, yet you know the rest of the rules are are easily abused. People arrive yeah. on visas with their tourist visas or whatever, and uh, they overstay, and then some informally seek asylum. Some just disappear into the system. Uh, and we don't get upset about that, yet uh, people arrive in some pretty desperate circumstances on boats, and we we do. And you know, I think um, the Navy's done a good job of stopping the boats. I don't think the politicians stopped the boats. I think the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> I heard uh, uh, the senator that was responsible for that for say, oh, we had a, a a frigate and a plane, and that was all we really needed to actually do the job with the cooperation now of the Indonesians and others. It's not the issue, really. That's a that's the the issue that was exploited politically. Dimension of the issue, I should say, that was exploited politically. But it's nowhere near a solution. And that's just, what that's uh, what worries me. You know, you keep putting people offshore, and you've got PNG saying, for example, we don't want them. You've got to close these centres. We don't want these people here. Yet the original deal with O'Neill was that uh, that they could be resettled in PNG, except that it was never going to happen. Yeah. You know, it was just a nice political argument at the time, the yeah. rud at the time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard not to see some of the discussion around the foreign fighters bill as um, a little bit politically um, cynical. Um, I mean, I think there's absolutely uh, a need for a policy response to how to deal with uh, foreign fighters, but uh, the government's kind of approach so far, which is to sort of um, stop them from returning or um, effectively leaving people stateless, is is not responsible. Simply for the fact that um, you can't, you can't, uh, if you're going to participate in a rules based international order, um, you know, actively facilitate uh, the sort of statelessness of of uh, citizens. They are our responsibility. If no one else is going to to take them. So if Iraq, for example, won't keep them, they have and no other third party country is going to to take them because they might have dual citizenship or something like that. Well, they are our responsibility. Um, and what we what we choose to do with um, you know these individuals that are definitely a difficult policy uh, set of choices for us as a society, something we actually need to discuss. And so it's disappointing that we're having this sort of discussion, um, which is probably not constitutional anyway, uh, rather than the discussion we kind of need to be having, which is how do we respond? You know, what are we going to do with the children and the families of, of dead foreign fighters and what are we going to do with actual foreign fighters? Because um, it's not always clear that they can be prosecuted. Um you know, for for doing um, for fighting in in these kinds of sort of wars. Uh, so, how do we respond? That is that is actually the important question. Yeah, and we've seen the case where we've had a few prominent people come back already to Australia, who fought for the Kurds, I believe, um, in that conflict zone, and nothing's happened. I mean, there was that you know famous case of um, I believe it was White Roy who visited um, Syria at the time, and I think it was parts of Iraq as well. Um, and he came back and nothing happened to him. Now, under existing legislation, you're meant to be charged. You're not meant to be in those areas as an Australian. So there seems to be, you know, inconsistencies here. Um, and flip the coin around to that second part of the question from Liam about de- um, deporting New Zealanders. Um, when we deport New Zealanders at the moment, and this is a source of huge issues, um, Jacinda Ardern said when she was here, corrosive to the relationship now between the two nations, um, on how we just basically put them on the plane, say, thanks very much, you're deported, 
And when they arrive in New Zealand, we just go, we wash our hands of them. There's no support network. We just go, oh, we'll leave it up to the Kiwis to sort that one out. And it's causing huge issues. Now we're, we're hearing reports, and there were some out last week in a couple of the um, different publications saying that some of these people then deported to New Zealand. They're not, they haven't got any skills, no family network. So, of course, what happens? They resort back to a life of crime. And that's why Jacinda Ardern said this is a corrosive relationship issue because it's causing issues in New Zealand. It's also seen as pretty bad form by us because some of these people were toddlers when they arrived here. Um, yes, they may have committed pretty horrendous crimes whilst in Australia. Yes, um, there's no doubt about that. But the the question is then you're saying they can't be re- rehabilitated ever, which means they should be locked up somewhere or there should be someone else's issue. Yet, we want the Kiwis to do their side of the work on that one, but then we don't want them to stand up and go, hey, shh, be quiet about the 150 you'll take from Nauru and Manus. So, well, I, I guess it sort of shows the, the special status that we grant to citizens. I mean... Mm. Um, you know, uh, you know, this isn't an issue that's only affected New Zealanders. Like there have been other cases, for example, where people who have had PR their whole lives have been, you know, brought out here as children who go on to commit crimes and are then deported under the bad character, basically criterion, which is a ministerial. Yeah. A lot of the discretion. original convicts. Um Certainly came out. Yeah. Of the <laughs> exactly. Then it was a criterion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now look, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I'm surprised. What, the one thing that surprises me because we're relatively close to New Zealand, we cooperate a lot, mm. and, and in, in many ways we're probably closer to New Zealand uh, in, in a trading sense and an economic sense than we often are between the states in yeah. this country. But having said that, I'm <laughs> surprised there just hasn't been more cooperation in developing the position on this. Yeah. You can't, it's not just for one side to make a decision and impose it on the other side. And yeah. then the other one says, oh, no, hang on, this is going too far. I mean, I would have thought that there should have been a fair bit of evidence-based research behind this before we started, you know, and, and, and <laughs> get into these positions. And of course, <laughs> what happens silly. in politics is the hardening of the arteries, you know. They take a position, they won't tra- – they they're intransigent and they will yeah. not move. Yeah. And so it just gets to be a bigger and bigger challenge and never gets uh, never gets properly addressed. So in 60 seconds or less, do you think um, all the people <laughs> on Maru, uh, Nauru and Manus will be ever put into Australian society? Maria? Oh, that's a, that's a, no, that's a really, uh, well, complex set of questions. Um, <laughs> primarily, primarily because, <laughs> you know, um, Asylum seeker policy is often described as a wicked problem, which is which is kind of crap, actually. It's not really a wicked problem. It's a set of choices that governments make that make it wicked, right? Yeah. And I think they've proven to us, because they've been the government for six years now, that they're determined to um, find any other solution than bring them. Anywhere. The thing is they're running out of solutions and they're running out of time. And I think those two things together will mean that they'll probably have to bring them to the mainland. So maybe the Medivac bill is their nice way of getting away with doing it, politically speaking, without being seen to cave into the far right. That's, I, that's I, my I guess thinking. It, it, it remains to be um, seen. And, and given that, um, you know, that bill is coming up for consideration again, which is in the gift of the government to set yeah. that, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have to do something. I think it's a, it's a, it's a blight on Australia's reputation internationally. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. John? Oh, look, I doubt that they will, given the, you know, the entrenched position of both sides of politics on this. But I've just been annoyed from the beginning that we didn't have a holistic approach to the issue. Okay, it's a problem. And people arriving by plane are a bigger problem. We ignore that bit. Uh, and um, But the holistic response is to work closely, say, with the Indonesians and transit countries 
uh, to have them enforce their laws. They don't just give pass, you know, don't don't just give visas for people in transit. They enforce that. They enforce the anti-people smuggling legislation they've got themselves. Yep. But you need to have an agreement between the source countries, the transit countries, and the destination countries, which is holistic. Yeah. In some cases, you have to be able to send them back. In other cases, they have to be resettled. Uh, and, um, you know, that's got to be a regional, at least a regional solution. At a time now in the world where you've got something like 65 million displaced persons, wow. I mean, yeah. it's a global problem of enormous significance. Yep. Look at Europe is just busting at the seams trying to deal with it. And every other day there are people drowning in the Mediterranean coming off from North Africa or still from the Middle East. In those circumstances, you know, you, you, Australia's got a unique opportunity to play more of a leadership role. Yeah. You know, we should have led this regional response and, you know, got the regional nations uh, or the source and transit and destination countries together and let's see if we can get a regional solution rather than just, well, they come here, we'll stick them on an island and they'll never come to Australia and they keep saying they'll never come to Australia. Um, harden the arteries on that one too. You know, they'll, they'll, it's going to be very difficult for them to have, actually let any of them in. So in those circumstances, they really have to focus on resettling them. So in, in that context, if New Zealand will take 150 or maybe 350 or 550, <laughs> do the deal. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, I just don't understand why you just let it drift, mm. which is all that's happening. Good point. All right. Now, we'll wrap up there on the um, the main topic for conversations today. We'll just get to some responses to last week via social media. So thank you, everyone, for sending your responses to last week's um, program via social media. First is Denise Shriverell. Um, if you look at hate speech on social media alone, you're only looking at part of this important issue. Social media is part of a broader media ecosystem, which also includes traditional media, which can create, broadcast, and distribute hate speech. That was in context of last week about the rise of hate speech and um, what needs to be done about it, particularly in the light of now increasing number of lone wolf style attacks we're seeing across the Western world. Uh, Michelle, or I hope I've got your your name correct, Michelle S, um, or maybe Michaelie S, I'm not too sure, um, so pardon me if I got it wrong, um, via Twitter, um, and the response is, is there more hate speech on social media than there is in real life, including shock jock radio slash TV programs? We'll just have a 60-second breakdown on this one. John, 60 seconds, I'm running the watch. Um, what do you think? Is there more hate speech on social media than there is in real life? I think we've always had hate speech. I think it's just more conspicuous now you've got social media. It's generated fast, more, you know, faster. Uh, more people are aware of it. Um, but, um, you know, it goes down to the basic question of what sort of country we are and what we want to be seen as being and as individuals within that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there's always been that sort of hate speech dimension to a, a lot of our attitudes in this country. Yeah, well said. Uh, Maria? Yeah, I think there's more hate speech on social media simply because social media is extremely democ democratic compared to TV or radio where it's a fixed space. Um, whether or not uh, there is more in real life versus social media is a bit of a measurement problem. Um, but um, um, but it could be the case that on social media one encounters opinions one doesn't like, whereas in your real life you may never encounter things that you don't like because you insulate yourself. So you might have more opportunities to be hateful on social media. Wow. How depressing. That is, that, that yeah. is very well said, though. I think mm. it's really, really pertinent points you raised there. Okay. Finally, the surprise question, which is my off-the-head question, has nothing to do with the list of questions or topics we've done this week. 
It is the surprise question because you don't know what it's going to be about. It's not on any list of anything at all. It's just me really wanting to know a bit more about you and hopefully helping the listeners out in that respect as well. So here we go. Surprise question for this week. Deep breath. Do you have a favorite type of coffee and do you have a favorite coffee shop? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like flat whites. Um, and, um, having gone to the UK and sampled some truly appalling flat whites, I have come to appreciate how good we have it here in Australia. Um, as for a favorite coffee shop, no, it actually really sort of depends on what I'm looking for. Oh, I see a lot in my building having coffee. Yes. The, the, the unit price per coffee and the quality ratio is quite good there. So, And final part of this question is, um, do you think coffee tastes better when you're by yourself or when you have company? Um, I, I'm a social person, so with others, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. John? You know, I'm too flat white. I mean, it's uh, dull and boring. No, uh, it's a classic. It's a, a classic, yeah. When I was a student in the US, I went to a coffee shop in Chicago and it was entirely a black coffee shop, which I hadn't realised. And I walked in and she said, what would you like? I said, I'll have a white coffee. She said, you will not. <laughs> you will have a black coffee with milk. Why did and, she ask? Uh, I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, look, I think it's all about companionship. It's all who you're with, not so much the taste of the coffee. Brilliant. Awesome. All right. On that note, we're going to finish for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And again, um, send us your feedback, questions, or compliments via Twitter, Facebook, or email. Twitter's A-P-P-S, Policy Forum, all one word. Facebook group is Policy Forum uh, Pod. And email podcast at policyforum.net. Thanks for listening, everyone. And that's a wrap. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.